Chapters 31 and 32 of John Barleycorn or Alcoholic Memoirs by Jack London. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 31 but the same stimulus to the human organism will not continue to produce the same response. By and by, I discovered there was no kick at all in one cocktail. One cocktail left me dead. There was no glow, no laughter tickle. Two or three cocktails were required to produce the original effect of one and I wanted that effect. I drank my first cocktail at 11.30 when I took the morning's mail into the hammock, and I drank my second cocktail an hour later just before I ate. I got into the habit of crawling out of the hammock ten minutes earlier so as to find time and decency for two more cocktails ere I ate. This became schedule. Three cocktails in the hour that intervened between my desk and dinner. And these are two of the deadliest drinking habits. Regular drinking and solitary drinking. I was always willing to drink when anyone was around. I drank by myself when no one was around. Then I made another step. When I had for a guest a man of limited drinking caliber, I took two drinks to his one, one drink with him, the other drink without him, and of which he did not know. I stole that other drink, and worse than that, I began the habit of drinking alone when there was a guest, a man, a comrade, with whom I could have drunk. But John Barleycorn furnished the extenuation. It was a wrong thing to trip a guest up with excess of hospitality and get him drunk. If I persuaded him, with his limited caliber, into drinking up with me, I'd surely get him drunk. What could I do but steal that every second drink, or else deny myself the kick equivalent to what he got out of half the number? Please remember, as I recite this development of my drinking, that I am no fool, no weakling. As the world measures such things, I am a success. I dare to say a success more conspicuous than the success of the average successful man, and a success that required a pretty fair amount of brains and willpower. My body is a strong body. It has survived where weaklings died like flies. And yet these things which I am relating happened to my body and to me. I am a fact. My drinking is a fact. My drinking is a thing that has happened, 
and is not theory nor speculation, and as I see it, it but lays the emphasis on the power of John Barleycorn, a savagery that we still permit to exist, a deadly institution that lingers from the mad old brutal days, and that takes its heavy toll of youth and strength and high spirit, and of very much of all of the best we breed. To return, after a boisterous afternoon in the swimming pool, followed by a glorious ride on horseback over the mountains or up or down the valley of the moon, I found myself so keyed and splendid that I desired to be more highly keyed, to feel more splendid. I knew the way. A cocktail before supper was not the way. Two or three, at the very least, was what was needed. I took them. Why not? It was living. I had always dearly loved to live. This also became part of the daily schedule. Then, too, I was perpetually finding excuses for extra cocktails. It might be the assembling of a particularly jolly crowd, a touch of anger against my architect, or against a thieving stonemason working on my barn, the death of my favorite horse in a barbed wire fence, or news of good fortune in the morning mail from my dealings with editors and publishers. It was immaterial what the excuse might be, once the desire had germinated in me, the thing was, I wanted alcohol. At last, after a score and more of years of dallying and of not wanting, now I wanted it. And my strength was my weakness. I required two, three, or four drinks to get an effect commensurate with the effect the average man got out of one drink. One rule I observed. I never took a drink until my day's work of writing a thousand words was done. And, when done, the cocktails reared a wall of inhibition in my brain between the day's work done and the rest of the day of fun to come. My work ceased from my consciousness. No thought of it flickered in my brain till next morning at nine o'clock when I sat at my desk and began my next thousand words. This was a desirable condition of mind to achieve. I conserved my energy by means of this alcoholic inhibition. John Barleycorn was not so black as he was painted. He did a fellow many a good turn, and this was one of them. And I turned out work that was healthful and wholesome and sincere. It was never pessimistic. The way of life I had learned in my long sickness. I knew the illusions were right, and I exalted the illusions. Oh, I still turn out the same sort of work 
stuff that is clean, alive, optimistic, and that makes toward life. And I am always assured by the critics of my superabundant and abounding vitality, and of how thoroughly I am deluded by these very illusions I exploit. And while on this digression, let me repeat the question I have repeated to myself ten thousand times. Why did I drink? What need was there for it? I was happy. Was it because I was too happy? I was strong. Was it because I was too strong? Did I possess too much vitality? I don't know why I drank. I cannot answer, though I can voice the suspicion that ever grows in me. I had been in too familiar contact with John Barleycorn through too many years. A left-handed man, by long practice, can become a right-handed man. Had I, a non-alcoholic, by long practice, become an alcoholic? I was so happy. I had won through my long sickness to the satisfying love of woman. I earned more money with less endeavor. I glowed with health. I slept like a babe. I continued to write successful books and in sociological controversy I saw my opponents confuted with the facts of the times that daily reared new buttresses to my intellectual position. From day's end to day's end I never knew sorrow, disappointment, nor regret. I was happy all the time. Life was one unending song. I begrudged the very hours of blessed sleep because by that much was I robbed of the joy that would have been mine had I remained awake. And yet I drank. And John Barleycorn, all unguessed by me, was setting the stage for a sickness all his own. The more I drank, the more I was required to drink to get an equivalent effect. When I left the Valley of the Moon and went to the city and dined out, a cocktail served at table was a wan and worthless thing. There was no pre-dinner kick in it. On my way to dinner, I was compelled to accumulate the kick two cocktails, three, and if I met some fellows, four or five, or six, it didn't matter within several. Once I was in a rush. I had no time decently to accumulate the several drinks. A brilliant idea came to me. I told the barkeeper to mix me a double cocktail. Thereafter, Whenever I was in a hurry, I ordered double cocktails. It saved time. One result of this regular heavy drinking was to jade me. 
my mind grew so accustomed to spring enlivened by artificial means that without artificial means it refused to spring enliven alcohol became more and more imperative in order to meet people in order to become sociably fit i had to get the kick and the hit of the stuff the crawl of the maggots the genial brain glow the laughter tickle the touch of devilishness and sting the smile over the face of things ere i could join my fellows and make one with them another result was that john barleycorn was beginning to trip me up he was thrusting my long sickness back upon me inveigling me into again pursuing truth and snatching her veils away from her tricking me into looking reality stark in the face but this came on gradually my thoughts were growing harsh again though they grew harsh slowly sometimes warning thoughts crossed my mind where was this steady drinking leading but trust john barleycorn to silence such questions come on and have a drink and i'll tell you all about it is his way and it works for instance the following is a case in point and one which john barleycorn never wearied of reminding me i had suffered an accident which required a ticklish operation one morning a week after i had come off the table i lay on my hospital bed weak and weary the sunburn of my face what little of it could be seen through a scraggly growth of beard had faded to a sickly yellow my doctor stood at my bedside on the verge of departure he glared disapprovingly at the cigarette i was smoking that's what you ought to quit he lectured it will get you in the end look at me i looked he was about my own age broad-shouldered deep-chested eyes sparkling and ruddy-cheeked with health a finer specimen of manhood one would not ask i used to smoke he went on cigars but i gave even them up and look at me the man was arrogant and rightly arrogant with conscious well-being and within a month he was dead it was no accident half a dozen different bugs of long scientific names had attacked and destroyed him the complications were astonishing and painful and for days before he died the screams of agony of that splendid manhood could be heard for a block around he died screaming you see said john barleycorn he took care of himself he even stopped smoking cigars and that's what he got for it pretty rotten eh 
But the bugs will jump. There's no forfending them. Your magnificent doctor took every precaution, yet they got him. When the bug jumps, you can't tell where it will land. It may be you. Look what he missed. Will you miss all I can give you, only to have a bug jump on you and drag you down? There is no equity in life. It's all a lottery. But I put the lying smile on the face of life and laugh at the facts. Smile with me and laugh. You'll get yours in the end, but in the meantime, laugh. It's a pretty dark world. I illuminate it for you. It's a rotten world when things can happen such as happened to your doctor. There's only one thing to do. Take another drink and forget it. And, of course, I took another drink for the inhibition that accompanied it. I took another drink every time John Barleycorn reminded me of what had happened. Yet I drank rationally, intelligently. I saw to it that the quality of the stuff was of the best. I sought the kick and the inhibition, and avoided the penalties of poor quality and of drunkenness. It is to be remarked in passing that when a man begins to drink rationally and intelligently, that he betrays a grave symptom of how far along the road he has traveled. But I continued to observe my rule of never taking my first drink of the day until the last word of my thousand words was written. On occasion, however, I took a day's vacation from my writing. At such times, since it was no violation of my rule, I didn't mind how early in the day I took that first drink and persons who have never been through the drinking game wonder how the drinking habit grows. Chapter 32 When the snark sailed on her long cruise from San Francisco, there was nothing to drink on board. Or rather, we were all of us unaware that there was anything to drink nor did we discover it for many a month. This sailing with a dry boat was malice aforethought on my part. I had played John Barleycorn a trick, and it showed that I was listening ever so slightly to the faint warnings that were beginning to arise in my consciousness. Of course, I veiled the situation to myself and excused myself to John Barleycorn. And I was very scientific about it. I said that I would drink only while in ports. During the dry sea stretches, my system would be cleansed of the alcohol that soaked it, so that when I reached a port, I should be in shape to enjoy John Barleycorn more thoroughly. His bite would be sharper, his kick keener, 
and more delicious. We were twenty-seven days on the traverse between San Francisco and Honolulu. After the first day out, the thought of a drink never troubled me. This I take to show how intrinsically I am not an alcoholic. Sometimes, during the traverse, looking ahead and anticipating the delightful Lane luncheons and dinners of Hawaii, I had been there a couple of times before, I thought, naturally, of the drinks that would precede those meals. I did not think of those drinks with any yearning, with any irk at the length of the voyage. I merely thought they would be nice and jolly, part of the atmosphere of a proper meal. Thus, once again, I proved to my complete satisfaction that I was John Barleycorn's master. I could drink when I wanted, refrain when I wanted. Therefore, I would continue to drink when I wanted. Some five months were spent in the various islands of the Hawaiian group. Being ashore, I drank. I even drank a bit more than I had been accustomed to drink in California prior to the voyage. The people of Hawaii seemed to drink a bit more, on the average, than the people in more temperate latitudes. I do not intend the pun, and can awkwardly revise the statement to latitudes more remote from the equator. Yet, Hawaii is only subtropical. The deeper I got into the tropics, the deeper I found men drank the deeper I drank myself. From Hawaii we sailed for the Marquesas. The Traverse occupied sixty days. For sixty days we never raised land a sail nor a steamer smoke. But early in those sixty days the cook, giving an overhauling to the galley, made a find. Down in the bottom of a deep locker, he found a dozen bottles of Angelica and Muscatel. These had come down from the kitchen cellar of the ranch, along with the home-preserved fruits and jellies. Six months in the galley heat had affected some sort of a change in the thick sweet wine. Branded it, I imagine. I took a taste. Delicious! And thereafter, once each day, at twelve o'clock, after our observations were worked up, and the snark's position charted, I drank half a tumbler of the stuff. It had a rare kick to it. It warmed the cockles of my geniality and put a fairer face on the truly fair face of the sea. Each morning, below, sweating out my thousand words, I found myself looking forward to that twelve o'clock event of the day. The trouble was, I had to share the stuff, and the length of the traverse was doubtful. 
I regretted that there were not more than a dozen bottles. And when they were gone, I even regretted that I had shared any of it. I was thirsty for the alcohol and eager to arrive in the Marquesas. So it was that I reached the Marquesas the possessor of a real man's size thirst. And in the Marquesas were several white men, a lot of sickly natives, much magnificent scenery, plenty of trade rum, and immense quantity of absinthe, but neither whiskey nor gin. The trade rum scorched the skin off one's mouth. I know, because I tried it. But I had ever been plastic, and I accepted the absinthe. The trouble with the stuff was that I had to take such inordinate quantities in order to feel the slightest effect. From the Marquesas I sailed with sufficient absinthe in ballast to last me to Tahiti, where I outfitted with Scotch and American whiskey, and thereafter there were no dry stretches between ports. But please do not misunderstand. There was no drunkenness, as drunkenness is ordinarily understood. No staggering and rolling around, no befuddlement of the senses. The skilled and seasoned drinker, with a strong constitution, never descends to anything like that. He drinks to feel good, to get a pleasant jingle, and no more than that. The things he carefully avoids are the nausea of over-drinking, the after-effect of over-drinking, the helplessness and loss of pride of over-drinking. What the skilled and seasoned drinker achieves is a discreet and canny semi-intoxication. And he does it by the twelve-month around without any apparent penalty. There are hundreds of thousands of men of this sort in the United States today, in clubs, hotels, and in their own homes, men who are never drunk and who, though most of them will indignantly deny it, are rarely sober, and all of them fondly believe, as I fondly believed, that they are beating the game. On the sea stretches I was fairly abstemious, but ashore I drank more. I seemed to need more anyway in the tropics. This is a common experience, for the excessive consumption of alcohol in the tropics by white men is a notorious fact. The tropics is no place for white-skinned men. Their skin pigment does not protect them against the excessive white light of the sun. The ultra-violet rays and other high-velocity and invisible rays from the upper end of the spectrum rip and tear through their tissues, 
just as the x-ray ripped and tore through the tissues of so many experimenters before they learned the danger. White men in the tropics undergo radical changes of nature. They become savage, merciless. They commit monstrous acts of cruelty that they would never dream of committing in their original temperate climate. They become nervous, irritable, and less moral. And they drink as they never drank before. Drinking is one form of the many forms of degeneration that set in when white men are exposed too long to too much white light. The increase of alcoholic consumption is automatic. The tropics is no place for a long sojourn. They seem doomed to die anyway, and the heavy drinking expedites the progress. They don't reason about it, they just do it. The sun sickness got me, despite the fact that I had been in the tropics only a couple of years. I drank heavily during this time, but right here I wish to forestall misunderstanding. The drinking was not the cause of the sickness, nor of the abandonment of the voyage. I was strong as a bull, and for many months I fought the sun sickness that was ripping and tearing my surface and nervous tissues to pieces. All through the New Hebrides and the Solomons and up among the atolls on the line, during this period under a tropic sun, rotten with malaria and suffering from a few minor afflictions such as biblical leprosy with the silvery skin i did the work of five men to navigate a vessel through the reefs and shoals and passages and unlighted coasts of the coral seas is a man's work in itself i was the only navigator on board there was no one to check me up on the working out of my observations, nor with whom I could advise in the ticklish darkness among uncharted reefs and shoals. And I stood all watches. There was no seaman on board whom I could trust to stand a mate's watch. I was mate as well as captain. Twenty-four hours a day were the watches I stood at sea catching catnaps when i might third i was doctor and let me say right here that the doctor's job in the snark at that time was a man's job all on board suffered from malaria the real tropical malaria that can kill in three months all on board suffered from perforating ulcers and from the maddening itch of ngari ngari a japanese cook went insane from his too numerous inflictions one of my polynesian sailors lay at death's door with black water fever oh yes it was a full man's job and i dosed and doctored and pulled teeth 
and dragged my patience through mild little things like ptomaine poisoning. Fourth, I was a writer. I sweated out my thousand words a day, every day, except when the shock of fever smote me, or a couple of nasty squalls smote the snark in the morning. Fifth, I was a traveler and a writer, eager to see things and to gather material into my notebooks. And sixth, I was master and owner of the craft that was visiting strange places where visitors are rare and where visitors are made much of. So here I had to hold up the social end, entertain on board, be entertained ashore by planters, traders, governors, captains of war vessels, kinky-headed cannibal kings, and prime ministers sometimes fortunate enough to be clad in cotton shifts. Of course I drank. I drank with my guests and hosts. Also, I drank by myself, doing the work of five men, I thought, entitled me to drink. Alcohol was good for a man who overworked. I noted its effect on my small crew when, breaking their backs and hearts at heaving up anchor in forty fathoms, they knocked off gasping and trembling at the end of half an hour and had new life put into them by stiff jolts of rum. They caught their breaths, wiped their mouths, and went to it again with a will. And when we careened the snark and had to work in the water to our necks between shocks of fever, I noted how raw trade rum helped the work along. And here again we come to another side of many-sided John Barleycorn. On the face of it, he gives something for nothing. Where no strength remains, he finds new strength. The wearied one rises to greater effort. For the time being, there is an actual accession of strength. I remember passing coal on an ocean steamer through eight days of hell, during which time we coal passers were kept to the job by being fed with whiskey. We toiled half drunk all the time. And without the whiskey, we could not have passed the coal. This strength John Barleycorn gives is not fictitious strength. It is real strength but it is manufactured out of the sources of strength, and it must ultimately be paid for and with interest. But what weary human will look so far ahead? He takes this apparently miraculous accession of strength at its face value, and many an overworked business and professional man as well as a harried common laborer, has traveled John Barleycorn's death road because of this mistake. End of chapter 32